You've got 10 seconds. The countdown going on right now. I'm sorry, I'm not doing it the wrong way. This is Play by Play Cast, the world's number one sports media podcast. Wait, what? Nobody's fact checking it, just keep going. Here we go. Who the hell is Happy Gilmore? Got all that on camera, right, John? Sure, I did. All right, because the red light was not on. The podcast about play by play broadcasters for play by play broadcasters, hosted by a play by play broadcaster. Oh, you can stick me in some kind of Italian boat because that one is Gondola. Now, from New York. Really? All the big ones are from New York. Your host, Joe Godet. It's still Joel. Yeah, he will not be able to see very well, Cotton. This is the 183rd episode of Play-By-Play Cast. Thanks, as always, for the subscribe, the stream, the download. It's a podcast about play-by-play broadcasters for play-by-play broadcasters, hosted by a play-by-play broadcaster. It's a professional development podcast that dives into the tips, tricks, experience, stories, process, and preparations of some of the biggest and best play-by-play announcers in the business. On social media at PXPCast, I'm at Joel Godet, or email me. J-G-O-D-E-T-T at B-S-U dot E-D-U. We took some of the biggest and best play-by-play announcers in the business to heart last week. Marv Albert, the voice of the NBA for the longest time, and probably still considered that by many uh, who grew up listening to his voice on the NBA in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s. NBA on TNT was episode number 182. If you did not catch the Marv Albert interview, uh, do go back and listen to it. Larry Kahn from Sports USA Radio preceded him. Alex Birch, he's senior coordinating producer from Big Ten Network, was episode number 180. You know, I've wanted to mention something about this for a couple of weeks, and I keep forgetting every time I record the podcast. Uh, But it is top of mind this week, so I want to dive into it before we get to today's guest, another phenomenal voice, one of my favorites for baseball on television. I'm a little partial to Tampa Bay because I spent three, two, two, two years, two and a half years uh, in Tampa and uh, love Dave Wills and Andy Freed on the radio and uh, enjoyed Dwayne stats on television um, with the Tampa Bay Rays. So we'll get to Dwayne here in just a second. But one thing that I wanted to touch on, we are in this era of COVID-19 and sports on television in an era of COVID-19 and what that will look like. And, you know, a few weeks ago, I remember watching Joe Buck on Real Sports on HBO. And he was in a round table. It was Joe Buck, Jim Nance, Mike Breen, and Brian Gumbel. And Joe Buck first raised the idea, or at least that's the first I had heard of it, of using pumped-in fake crowd noise on a broadcast to make it sound better. And Joe's explanation was like, you have to have crowd noise. Like, it would be, it would be terrible without it. We need to give it some sense of normalcy. And my response was like, this is the craziest thing ever. I've done Mid-American Conference football games on a Tuesday night when it's 15 degrees in Kalamazoo. There's no one in the stands. Is it weird? Yeah, it's weird, but it's like that's that's the moment. And, you know, I've done women's basketball on CBS Sports Network where there are not a ton of people in the crowd. And the way they mic the games, it sounds good. Like, you can hear the benches get into it, and I don't know what they do, but, like, I've done games where there have been hundreds of people there, and you turn it on the TV when you get home, and I watch it back, and I'm like, oh, you know, the the miking of it sounds pretty good. There's creative ways to do it, and I don't know how they go about it. Um, And then, you know, UFC had their fight the other week, and 
there was no crowd noise, but you could hear everything the fighters were saying during the fight, after the fight. Uh, and some of that was interesting and cool. And, and my reaction was like, you can't, you can't fake crowd noise that ruins the authenticity of the moment. Uh, you know, it ruins the journalistic nature of the moment. You know, we're, we're there capturing the moment. This sporting event has no crowd. Part of that means that there should be no crowd noise on the broadcast. And I still, part of me still holds that to be true. Like, if this is a historical documentation, then there shouldn't be crowd noise or CGI people in the crowd. Like, it should be played in an empty venue that sounds like an empty venue. And there's part of me, like, that's where I was, like, wholeheartedly could not have been convinced any other way. And I'm watching this real sports, and I'm like, Joe Buck, what are you talking about? Um, there's part of me that still sees that. But I've come to think over the last couple of weeks, as now it, 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 be, it has become apparent, I think, that, that we're going to get piped in crowd noise. I don't mind as much anymore. And maybe it's because I saw it. Like, if you've seen any of the Bundesliga, like it, you don't notice. Like, it, it's a weird... You just hear a crowd, and it's like, oh, okay, yeah, the crowd. And it didn't register in my mind that there was nobody in the stadium. It didn't bother me as much. The two schools of thoughts are this. One... We're producing and capturing a historical event, so we want to be as accurate as possible, yes. But we're also producing television, a TV show, an entertaining TV show. We want people to watch and enjoy it. And part of that is to create the most enjoying experience possible. And I was worried at first that like adding crowd noise would sound horrible. I'm a wrestling fan. We've talked about it before on this podcast. And when WWE SmackDown used to be recorded, they would pump in crowd noise at times. You know, like they'll add a cheer here or they'll like drown out a boo here or they'll like, and it's, you can tell. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, oh, this is going to be like, I'm going to, I'm all I'm going to think about is that I can tell that this crowd is fake. But then you watch the Bundesliga stuff and it seemed normal. Uh, the thing that's interesting will be how they do it. And, and like, I would love to be able to get inside the mind of an audio person who is going to have to basically be able to play the correct crowd noise at the right time, like make them cheer and make them like, you don't want to make them boo or like gasp, but raising levels of crowd noise and lowering and, uh, types of genuine reactions that you would normally get like that is a fascinating aspect of all of this because that is an art form, I think, and, and will be an art form in and of itself going forward. So uh, that had been on my mind and on my uh, chest. I wanted to get off a little bit uh, over the last couple of weeks. So I wanted to make sure I remembered to do it here because we're going to be broadcasting in a, a little bit of a different era and different situation, uh, most certainly going forward. All right, Dwayne Stats is our guest here on this episode of the podcast. He has been the television voice of the Tampa Bay Rays ever since they came into existence. That is not his only stop in the major leagues, though. Before Dwayne was with Tampa Bay, he was with ESPN. He was with the New York Yankees. He was with the Houston Astros, and he was with the Chicago Cubs. He did spend some time in minor league baseball as well. We'll talk with Dwayne about producing his telecast, working with his analysts and setting them up as best as possible and how you have to draw from a color analyst on television when you have so much time in baseball. 
We'll talk about kind of some life lessons with Dwayne. He is the author of a book. You can find it on Amazon. It's called Position to Win. Uh, What Dwayne has learned uh, through his career, through adversity, through ups and downs, through trials and tribulations, what he's learned from the game of baseball and covering that on a day in and day out basis that he's been able to apply to life as well. But where we start is with my love of the Tampa Bay Rays. I know a lot of people don't go to their games and I know people hate the stadium. But, like, and, and granted, it's not in the gr- most, like, if you've never been to Tampa Bay, like, it's not in the easiest area to get to. If you live in Tampa, you got to go over the bridge, which is, can be kind of a pain. I liked it because you could roll your windows down. It was beautiful. But, like, it's, it is not the most convenient thing in the world. But I happen to really like Tropicana Field. Like, I'm very partial to it. Very enjoyable place to catch a baseball game. I really like going there. I am surely in the minority but that's where i started with Dwayne stats this week on pxp cast i think it has sight lines that are very good i like the idea that it's not a gargantuan place uh there are deficiencies nobody's going to question that but um you know there are deficiencies in every ballpark uh that just goes without saying but i have um uh, I have not been uh, as big a critic of the TROP as, as some people think. It probably could be in a better location. Uh, it, could be, it could be improved without question. But any and every time something goes wrong, you know, there's a, there's a piling on situation that, uh, that happens. And I hate to think that that's human nature, but I'm afraid that sometimes it is human nature. But I like it. Um, you know, my, my wife loves to go to games there. I think uh, particularly being in the South Florida, the West Coast here, anywhere in Florida, anywhere in the South, uh, you're going to uh, appreciate an indoor ballpark, one that's air conditioned. And, uh, and so uh, it's, could you improve it? Absolutely. And I think the, I, I think the idea uh, in terms of any future uh, in this market and in a lot of markets have depended upon uh, better facilities. There's that, and I think I think the team was announced in 1996-ish. Um, That's right. And at that point, I was not not to date this, but at that point, I was nine years old. Um, <laughs> so, so any nine-year-old sees a team called the Devil Rays with a logo that looked like that, and I was sold immediately. You know, interesting that you would say that because I was nine years old. <laughs> living uh, in Southern Illinois outside of St. Louis when the National League expanded with the New York Mets and the Houston Colt 45s and the Colt 45s, a a major league baseball team in Texas to a nine-year-old kid. And then the fact that I could actually pick up their games at night on the radio sealed the deal for me. So I was a long distance fan of that franchise from the beginning the logo had a lot to do with it. You know, uh, it was in, in, in my world at nine, it was all about uh, baseball and Gene Autry and, th- <laughs> and things and people like that. So it was a perfect uh, coming together of uh, two great elements in my life at that time. I knew you were a 45s fan. I didn't know the reason was simply the, the childlike aspect of a, that team seems really cool. Yeah. And the fact it just sealed it when I was, for some reason at night, you know, your parents go, well, you have to go to bed. And I had a little radio in there. And so I would uh, 
spin the dial and I picked up their games and I thought how, how great this is. I mean, <laughs> to have major league baseball coming from that wild state of Texas. So, and here I was stuck in the Midwest. So that was great for me. Tell me about when you, um, I want to get back to, to Texas and Houston a, a little bit as we go here, but, but tell me about when you got to Tampa first and foremost, and what it was like for you, um, to be part of the launching of an organization and broadcasting that and having that perspective um, and what was special and unique about 1998 for you? Well, you know, you know, the history of trying to get a franchise here uh, for a long time. There are a lot of disappointments. Uh, this market had been leveraged against other markets so they could get ballparks. And so through all of that, they finally got the, got their franchise. And for me, in a way, it was it was kind of reliving, you know, that childhood fantasy I had of rooting for an expansion team. Uh, I knew that the the Colt 45s and and the Mets had a chance to lose more games than you could count. In fact, the Mets set a record for losing in 1962, and uh, Houston finished ahead of the Chicago Cubs, so that was a moral victory. I knew there was going to be a a lot of losing and heartaches and all that. I'm not sure we thought there would be. 10 years of losing like that to suffer through. And, and toward that end, Gene Elston, who had a great deal to do with me, he was the guy I listened to when I was nine and I wound up breaking into the major leagues with him. Uh, he had uh, a great influence on me. And so when I got this job, I called Gene, had a nice conversation with him about, uh, about what his approach was with an expansion team in 1962, knowing that even though there are a lot of years in between, I would be dealing with some of the same things he did. And basically what you did is, is you sold the event, you covered the event, uh, you know that the, unless a miracle happens, you're probably not gonna win more games than the team loses. So you're gonna have to deal with that. You have to concentrate on, on, the, uh, on the individual, on on the personality side of, and, and, and an expansion club gives players who otherwise might not have had an opportunity in the major leagues, a chance to actually perform at the major league level. That's a great personal story. And so those are the kinds of things. And then of course, you're always going to have the young talent coming up and uh, you always try to keep uh, fans abreast of that. And so the idea that it was new, it was the uh, fulfillment of a long sought after franchise in this market, uh, already a good baseball market in terms of interest and varied fans because of spring training and, and people who had retired here who had been baseball fans. So there was a built in interest that is still here today. I, and I think it's, it's reflected in, in our numbers uh, consistently in this market. Our TV numbers have always been good so I, I think you had that and then you had all of the uh, uh, all of the elements of uh, players who were looking for opportunities to get into the big leagues and then you have to also project toward the future and so all of that went into uh, the mix when we were trying to figure out how we're going to present this product I was gonna say you, you don't win a ton in the first several years but it probably wasn't as difficult a job to broadcast because of all of those things you just talked about. Like that's probably more, I mean, winning is fun, but ultimately we're storytellers and that's probably 
just as, if not more rewarding than going out and winning games every night. Yeah. I think when you win, you know, winning takes care of itself. You know, the stories present themselves. You're going to have a lot of feel good moments. You're going to markets and all of that. Uh, so it's, I, I always thought that the fun of those first few years was the challenge of, uh, of trying to keep the telecast interesting. And that was a pact that uh, Joe McGrain was my partner the first few years here. And, uh, and our, our mutual pact is that if the game gets out of hand, you know, you can't go to the beach if the game is nine to two, you know, in the, in the second or third inning, we still have an evening here to cover and, and try to maintain interest and fun and an audience at the same time. So from that point of view, it's probably as challenging as, as you're going to find, ask any broadcaster who suffered through, you know, a 95 or a hundred game loss season, they'll tell you what the challenge is like. Uh, Maybe this is hard to go back and pick out, but but what are the types of things you would do to keep things interesting? Well, here's the thing. I, I always felt that uh, that we were there primarily because of the game, and I tried never to uh, override what was going on. But there were times, as I said, if it's nine to one, you know, you're you're going to have to do something. So the game is still there, but there has to be a personality. There has to be a repertoire. Uh, a rapport in your repertoire uh, so that you can, you, you can try to keep the telecast interesting. And what we tried to do, uh, Joe and I, and, and Brian Anderson now, uh, you know, BA is a great personality. And, and so I would try to mine those personalities. And in some cases I've had those two guys primarily more than anybody else. Uh, and it didn't take a lot of prodding to mine those personalities. So, uh, at the end of the day, because we're there day in and day out, night after night, people, re and I think baseball broadcasters have a chance to do this more than anybody else, is is develop a personal relationship, if you will, with uh, viewers and fans, listeners. And so we tried to play on that as well and be, uh, be their friends, you know, be part of uh, their living room and uh, you know, you've got one or two or three or four people watching a game, maybe in their family rooms. Well, we're part of that experience. And so we try never to lose mind of that. Tell me about uh, creating that relationship, not just with the viewer, but also with the person that's sitting next to you. Um, and, you know, going back to we'll start with Brian Anderson, um, I know you've talked in the past about how much like how much he wants to be good at this and what it was like in the early years with him where, um, where he, he put a ton of thought into it and what it's like for you as uh, the play-by-play -play guy to make his job easier and also um, to see him um, put that effort in and try to make it the best team and best um, you know, tapestry possible. Well, it was drilled into my head that uh, preparation was 90% of this job and then you go out and perform and cover the game, do what you're going to do. And I, I always thought it was important to be prepared, whether you're play-by-play, -play, whether you're the analyst, whomever you are in, in the telecast, you've got to be prepared. You've got to do your homework. And if you do that, and then you let your personality come forward, I, I think those are two critical elements of, of having a fun and ultimately successful uh, broadcast telecast. So I, I think 
that was always on our minds. Uh, work ethic has a lot to do with it. You know, I, I had uh, these two guys, and Brian is one of them, uh, along with Joe, who, who had a keen interest in being good at what they did, and, and Brian was like that. You know, Brian is a conscientious guy. Uh, he, he wants to be able, and as a result of that, he'll do his prep, but he'll also be the fun guy that he is. And I think if you bring that work ethic, and if you, you know, if you look at where we all come from, uh, baseball, I think, traditionally has sort of been, however we define the working man today, it's been the working man's game. Well, that's where I came from. Uh, that's where Brian Anderson came from. And in a sense, that's where McGrain came from. His, his father was a professor, but he still had that, that Midwest work ethic of, hey, you know, we're, we're like everybody else. We're the everyman. And, and I think if you, if you bring that to the ballpark every day, and Brian Anderson did that uh, when, he, when he first broke in, I know the first game uh, we really did in earnest was in Oakland, and he was filling in for, for Joe McGrain. And he was, he was very nervous, Brian. And so I said, look, you prepare for this. We're going to just do the telecast. Don't worry about it. And I, and I thought things went well. Well, Brian went back, went back to the, back to the hotel, back to the hotel. Terrible. And uh, he uh, talked with me the next day and, and I, I encouraged him that he wasn't nearly as bad as he thought he was, but he's very critical, you know, and you have to do that. I mean, if you play in the major leagues, like most of my partners have, and unless you're just a gifted player who can show up and suddenly you're that good, all of these guys have to work at it. And I, I've worked with partners who absolutely had to do that. And so they're used to that. They're used to putting in the time and effort. And I respect that. And so if, if you have guys who do that and then you develop the trust that you're going to have in any relationship, whether, whether it was your best friend in grade school or whether it turns out to be your girlfriend or your wife or whomever, you better have trust in that relationship. And outside of maybe, you know, our, our wives, uh, we spend more time together, sitting next to each other than any other person in our lives. So you've got to have that. And I think I've been fortunate that I've had partners who I felt that I could trust and I hope they felt that they could trust me. I feel like it's an interesting relationship, interesting relationship. on television as well because you've done radio and tv when you do radio and and particularly when you come up in the minor leagues nowadays on radio like when i was in minor league baseball i i seldom had a partner um so the first time i ever called a baseball game on television going into it i was a little freaked out because i thought like hey i haven't done this game with a partner a whole lot and B, it's a different type of working with a partner because even in basketball, when you let the partner have and you set them up and you give them their room to work, it's in spurts and there's action that breaks it up. In baseball, I feel like it really tests your your social ability, so to speak. Um, what's different for you about working with an analyst in television and bringing the most out of them as possible in a baseball setting when you really have a long, wide open blank canvas with which to work and storytell um, yourself and the person next to you? Well, I think that, I think the canvas gives you that opportunity. The game gives you that opportunity. Really. I think on radio, 
as, as well as TV. I, I think TV gives you more of an opportunity because people are seeing what's going on. You don't necessarily have to be as descriptive. Uh, I think you can do radio uh, pretty much alone. And, and I did a lot of those games alone. I, you know, I spent time in the minor leagues in Oklahoma City and, and, and recreated games, did live games there, uh, which really helped me grow. And then I got to uh, eventually got to Houston. And when I first went there the first year, uh, Gene Elston and I, we were the crew. And that was before every game, you know, was on TV. And, and shortly, you know, we were doing 50 TV games. And, and when we did a TV game, you know, we, and I, one of us was on TV, one of us was on radio. So I got a, a lot of opportunity uh, to develop my craft and, and know how to sink or swim. And then we added uh, Larry Durker, I don't know, my second or third year there because the TV contract expanded and, and TV started to break out to the point where you were doing almost every game in the regular season. So all of that changed. But what I found is radio is great because you can take it almost any direction you want. And that's what made it so fun. I went to Chicago and, and worked six innings of radio, three on TV. And I had, when I walked into the booth with the Cubs, I had uh, Lou Boudreaux and Vince Lloyd on either side of me. And here I am, this young broadcaster. I'm thinking, are you kidding me? And they were the greatest people of all time. And if, if you graded out Lou Boudreaux as, as a broadcaster, you know, he, he probably wouldn't have gotten an A uh, at Syracuse. But, uh, but people loved him because he was real. And people just hung on what he said. And I'll tell you, I, uh, I enjoyed a guy like that to be a young broadcaster and have a, a Hall of Fame player and manager and have him broadcast all those years. Anything, for an example, we did a, a little pregame show, kind of an accordion piece. And so some days it might be two minutes. Some days they might want five minutes. And Lou was such a treasure. I could wait until literally five minutes before we were going to go on and talk to Lou about a topic, a subject. And we would just go, which was just unbelievable for me to be next to a guy where I could go anywhere with him and know that I was going to get either a great baseball story, a great human interest story, get his perspective on, on somebody who had just joined the club, all of those things. So that helped me. And um, all the way along, I think I've, uh, I have never forgotten the radio roots that we have in this game because it seemed for a long time you know, society changes, all of those things changes, technology. But it was like radio and baseball were made to go together. And as time moves on, television becomes more dominant and, and is the dominant force, and, and you find yourself in that medium. So um, there are some adjustments there, as you well know. Uh, you have to, you have to let the video tell a, a big part of the story. Uh, there are times when you need to help build a situation, you need to cover a situation, and times when you need to just step back and, and let that moment, let it breathe, as they love to say. 
and at the same time integrate your analyst and the analyst is going to be uh, way more active because you've got the, the replay coming there and that's standard procedure over and above anything that you're going to interact with him when the action is live. So it's, uh, it, it's different, but still you're calling a game and, and you get a good feel for how you do it, what you do it, you know, you know what you're doing. And, uh, it's still, uh, still the best, but to me it all, all of those steps made sense to get me where I am today. And that, you know, primarily covering it from a TV angle. How is, uh, how's broadcasting, particularly on the television side, changed through all of that as well uh, i mean you, we go back to the beginning and and you said uh you know you were doing your first games in houston before there was tv every game and now we're in an era where that that's like an unconscionable thought um how how have the tools of the trade progressed and how has that made your job um easier more interesting um more intricate well, I, I think the, the bigger challenge, you know, we, we've, we've seen us make this transition from radio where you've got to be on top of the action. Now, sometimes you don't have to be as accurate. And frankly, there were broadcasters who were not all that accurate, but, you know, who knew? So, uh, but the idea was to be as accurate as you could and as entertaining, you know, growing up in the St. Louis area, I also had not only did I listen to the Houston broadcast with Gene Elston and their crew, but I had, uh, and, and for a time, Harry Carey before Jack Buck emerged as really the voice of the Cardinals. Uh, I, I was influenced by all of those guys. I listened to Bob Prince at night with the pirates out of Pittsburgh. Those are the guys who I really grew up listening to. And I, I know that, uh, and then to get to know those guys and to get a feel for their personalities and who they were later was great. But it also gave me a frame of reference the guys I listened to and how they approached the game. Uh, for an example, uh, Harry Carey and Jack Buck both had, had great personalities. Harry's was over the top and he was, you know, Harry was Harry. Jack, I love Jack because he had this great rhythm of a game. He covered the game as well as anybody, but he had this, this understated humor and wit about him that I loved. And he had some great interactions with his partners when primarily Mike Shannon, when Shannon became the analyst in that radio booth, uh, Jack had that great sense of humor. And I, I think, uh, I, I, I like to think that I've stolen from uh, all of those guys who I listen to. And I think we all do that to try to develop our own style. And the, and the, the big change has been as TV, as more uh, technology has entered the TV truck, uh, the more a producer and a director and a play-by-play -play guy and an analyst have to come together to make sense of all that and, and to make room for all of that. And so I, I think that might be the biggest challenge to integrate all of that and know what the proper timing of putting all that together would be. I was saying how much, you know, you're doing a game every single day, um, and there's so many elements, particularly in baseball, um, where you can do so many different things. Uh, what are the conversations that you have on a day-to-day -day basis to try to, all right, here's a unique way we can demonstrate this or show this, or I want, 
a replay of that from last night, or when this guy comes up to bat, let's try to do this. Uh, how much time do you have to do all of that on a, on a night-to-night basis? Well, I, I think uh, that's one of the great things about having continuity with the crew. Uh, here, you know, we've had Kevin Patterson as our producer primarily, uh, Gary Nicholas as our director, uh, and they travel with us, which is important. You know, that wasn't always the case years ago. Uh, a guy might drop in, you know, Houston, when we were doing primarily the road games for a few years, uh, Joe O'Rourke uh, came in from New Jersey to direct our games. I love Joe and learned a lot of things as a young broadcaster from Joe because he'd done everything in the broadcast business. But we had an opportunity now on a, on a daily basis to interact. And we do that. Everybody talks about, you know, the production meeting, the proverbial production meeting before every game. And I think those are important, but I think in some cases they're overblown because it becomes part of the, the either ritual or drudgery of, of a telecast. Baseball, I think we can have those almost impromptu as well. You know, there, there's absolutely a value in having them and having that structure. But a lot of what we talk about, we'll talk about either on the plane, you know, on the bus rides. We'll talk about it, uh, you know, when we, uh, when we go down to have our favorite soft drink. We will uh, discuss all of that. And, and we'll go over situations that happened in the game that night or the night before or anticipate what we might want to do. And so it's, it's uh, I, I much prefer it that way if, if we have the continuity of a crew and, and if, you know, if you get along and like each other and, and we've been pretty fortunate here with our crew, I'd put our crew up against anybody in the business. Uh, I, think, uh, I think we have some talented people you know, from the tape guys in the truck, you know, there are a couple of other guys we travel with all the time and the continuity just uh, lends itself to a better telecast. Um, you've mentioned a couple of times uh, your relationship with Gene Elston. And uh, I, I know when you were 10 years old, you sent him a letter for the first time and that's what started that relationship that you wound up um, having with him professionally What's it like for you, though, when you're 10 years old, this guy is your idol, you've been communicating with him for years, um, when you're sitting in a booth with him at 23 years old, uh, how surreal, intimidating, um, how incredible is that moment, and how impactful was it on your career early on? Well, it, it was as impactful as, as, we, as we can imagine. I, I don't know that there are words... That, that I can use to express how impactful he was on my, uh, on my career. You know, Gene had, a, had this wonderful delivery, the quality in his voice that made him inviting. Uh, he, he was commanding, but also a very friendly voice. And he was broadcasting a team that lost 96 games every year. And, uh, and so as a kid, I, uh, I was, I was, taken by that voice and you know i i guess i was uh i, I don't know what word we would use but uh, uh maybe just uh, ignorant and aggressive but all of those things at the same time so i'm going to write him a letter you know I, maybe i could get some autographs maybe i could get this and and he responded to that and i still have that letter and that Colt 45 
envelope that it came in. I thought that was the greatest thing uh, that I'd ever gotten. So as time went by and I realized that, uh, you know, we all grow up playing the game and I realized nobody was going to pay me to play. And I was fortunate enough to have a couple of uh, teachers uh, in the English department at high school and, uh, you know, the debate team and some other events who really encouraged me to expand my horizons and do that. And, and I, I loved, I just loved listening to broadcasts and thought, what a way to make a living if you could do that. And um, so with that interest, it was just a natural thing to me since I had developed something of a rapport with Gene and we were at least pen pals. And when, uh, when Houston would come to St. Louis, I would try to make my way up to the press box just to say hello. And back then I, you know, I had questions like, what about this guy in, in Oklahoma City, uh, you know, this catcher? He, all his numbers in the sporting news are really good. Well, you know, I didn't know that he was like 34 years old. <laughs> he wasn't necessarily a prospect, but I had those conversations with Gene and, and then talk about broadcasting. And when it got to the point where I, I became serious about wanting to broadcast, I go, look, uh, well, why not avail myself of, of his graciousness and his willingness to send me a line or two about different things. You know, he, he enthusiasm for an example. He said, that's gonna come naturally. You just let that come, let you be the person you are and that will come. Uh, some guys are more high profile in terms of their enthusiasm than others. And some guys are really low key, which is a great thing about covering this game because it's across the board. So he, he really meant everything to me and uh, and then when I got a chance to uh, go up and do my first game, I was actually working for a TV station doing uh, the nightly sports on uh, KPLR TV in St. Louis. It was an independent at the time. It just opened their uh, newscast. And I was a young guy with a couple of years in the minor leagues and uh, had, a, had my, uh, my mass communications degree ready to go. And I, I got that job. And from there, I had... Uh, I had gotten wind that that the Astros were going to maybe make a change on their crew. They wanted to add a guy, and uh, so I wound up going from St. Louis to uh, Chicago to do essentially an on-air audition. And we did. Uh, I had Rick Russell and J.R. Richard uh, start that game, and I think the time of game was like two hours and twelve minutes. But it, that was my first major league game. And at the same time, an audition. Uh, and it turned out that I got the job. Um, and I, I will recall that uh, Gene, who Gene's personality in the booth was businesslike. He was friendly, but he was businesslike. And for a young guy, that could be intimidating. And I just, uh, uh, my feeling was look, I know that you've been part of my life to help me develop who I am as a broadcaster and, and I will do my work. I will do my homework and try to develop into the best broadcaster I can be. And he was there uh, to uh, be the sounding board for me and, and sometimes just be straight out uh, honest and critical, which was good for me. And I, I thought at the time, uh, look, I, I 
think I think at the time I was the youngest broadcaster in the major leagues. So I'm going to, I'm going to listen to any and all these guys because I've got a ton of things to learn from them. And so he was very special for me uh, all the way along without question and became not only uh, a guy who helped me as, as one of my favorite broadcasters growing up, uh, but in a sense, uh, a mentor who would help me. He was, again, a sounding board I could use and, and an individual who was my friend uh, all the way through for the rest of his life and a guy who I owe a great deal to and uh, have felt nothing but gratitude toward him. I want to play off of, uh, you know, things that you had, things that you would learn early in your career sitting next to Gene um, and kind of relate that a little bit. Uh, the book that you wrote is Position to Win, um, and you talk in it about the concept of positivity. Um, and I'm curious, moments in your career um, that maybe helped shape that um, and, and things where, from a broadcasting standpoint, maybe you felt like, um, you needed a little push in that direction and how that positive mentality helped you and where it came from. <laughs> I think, uh, I, I, I like to think that I, that I almost naturally have some positive vibes, <laughs> in, you know, but, at, but at the same time, um, you know, I, I took a logic class in high school and so I, I have a, I have a lot of respect for logic and the scientific method and all of that. But at the same time, I have a great respect for uh, the human spirit. And I don't think anybody ever influenced me more about being positive and being a, a decent human being than my paternal grandfather, who, um, who lived uh, in Missouri. Uh, he was born in 1888. Uh, I never saw him mad in his life. The people who I talked with about him never saw him angry. Uh, he was, I, I think he and my grandmother were married in, I think, 1909. Uh, they lived out on a farm in Missouri. They raised nine children. Uh, I think it was by 1911, they had their first child. And every two years, uh, over an 18 year period, they had a child. They had nine children, all spaced two years apart. At a time when infant death, uh, the mortality rate was higher than we like to think. They, they uh, raised them all to adulthood. They all became contributing decent human beings. Uh, they learned a work ethic from him. And he was not the taskmaster in terms of being gruff and tough but he was a great motivator. He believed in reading. I think he was the only guy in, in their county who had a set of encyclopedias that he had purchased in the early 1900s that I now have. Um, I, I think he gave me uh, the attitude, the positive attitude and, and the importance of faith and respecting your fellow human. Uh, and I, I really have, I think him, and my father, I could, I could live another 50 years and never work as hard as my grandfather or my father did. And they both had great positive attitudes. Uh, we're not, uh, we're not angry people and, uh, respected, uh, 
people and, and had a great work ethic. And I'm, I'm just blessed to have been uh, their son and their grandson. And I really think those are the two guys who had the greatest influence on me to shape my values and give me uh, kind of a, a positive push in, uh, in this world. You made it uh, to the major league level as a broadcaster fairly young um, as well, though. Like, was, was there a time where, where you needed that to kind of, um, you know, pep your step up a little bit? Like, where, where hey, we're 28-year-old Dwayne Stats is saying, like, I know I'm here, but I don't know if I'm going to be able to make it for 40 years here. I, like, is, can I do this? Um, and and yeah. what kept you going that way? Well, what kept me going is that I was I was doing exactly what I wanted to do. I if I, if I could have been on the mound and <laughs> pitching, you know, then I would have wanted to pitch for forty years because I don't I I can't imagine there's anything better athletically than than manipulating a baseball and having enough velocity to do the things you want to do with it. I because it all begins with you. Yeah, and you're in control, and if you succeed. You succeed if you fail, that's on you. Okay, sometimes you're going to fail and things are out of your control. Uh, and that's why, you know, my older daughter, who never dated players ever, but wound up marrying Dan Wheeler. And I, I mean, I, I, I love that Dan was able to, again, a, a blue collar kid from Rhode Island was able to beat the odds and do something that almost all of us wanted to do as a kid and spend parts of 13 years in the major leagues. And, and I told him, I said, for a blue collar kid from Rhode Island, you've done pretty well for yourself, pal. And I, so I felt the same way broadcasting. I just felt uh, there's nothing else, you know, for a, for a little moment when things aren't happening quickly enough, you know, I'd spent a couple of years in the minor leagues. I went back in the off season in those years to finish my degree. And, you know, and if, in my own mind, things weren't happening quickly enough. Well, wait a minute, you're 22, you know, you're 23, and now you get a chance to do this. But for a short moment, I thought I might want to go to law school, uh, how I would pay for that, who knows. But I, I did have uh, a, an acquaintance who I talked with seriously about that. But I, my heart was in baseball and broadcasting. That's what I wanted to do. And I have been extremely blessed and fortunate to do all these years what I wanted to do. You know, you get to a point where I was I was fortunate in Houston and that we had two play-by-play guys and Gene's the primary guy and should be, earned it and all of that was there from the beginning. But I got a ton of play-by-play innings for a young broadcaster then. And and it was it was difficult for me uh, to make that move because that's where my baseball heart had been in Houston. But when the Chicago situation came along, I went, well, of course, you know, I mean, you've got to, you've got to take that job. And then when MSG made the rights deals and the Yankees offered me that deal, Bob Gutkowski at, at uh, MSG, uh, my late YD at the time, I had, I loved radio and my, and my primary concern there was, you know, I'm not going to do radio. And she, and she told me then, and when that was in 19, whatever that was, you know, 1990, 89, 90, she said, look, TV is going to be the future. And I go, yeah, but I love radio. And she goes, <laughs> you know, so, you know, that was, I was influenced by her. 
I think, to do that. And that was a great opportunity for me. And, and to spend that time with Kubek, the five years we spent there, uh, was just the best. And Bob Gutkowski was the greatest uh, running that show up there. He was absolutely the best. So I think, um, uh, you know, I, I go on and on here, but I think uh, my, my real feeling was it was, it was baseball play by play. It's what I wanted to do. And, and I wanted to uh, get an opportunity to do as much of it as I could. And, you know, you know how we all are. We go, well, I'm in this market. Do I need to go to another market? Well, here's, and there were a couple opportunities that, you know, you don't pursue, uh, but you have to think about that, you know, and, and you start having children, you go, well, you know, we got to start a college fund here and we got to do all that. So I've got to put some money in the bank at some point. So all of those things go into those decisions that you make. And, um, and as I look back, I, I don't think uh, anybody in the business, you know, there might've been guys who worked as hard, but I, I don't think they worked any harder than I did in terms of trying to get as many events, whether I was in Houston and then doing, you know, basketball in the off season, same thing in Chicago. I, you know, I went there and I, I did the DePaul schedule uh, they would have me come in and do drive time radio as well as the Cubs games. So I thought I'd put in my time uh, to kind of hone my skills. And when I went to New York, it gave me more time because I had, I didn't have to really take the off season and do a lot of things. And um, it gave me more family time. And so to be able to have that when, when the girls were as young as they were and help to raise them as well. Uh, I, I think it worked out well in that way for me. What is a, what's baseball taught you about life as well from the sports standpoint? Um, there was a, there was an anecdote again from your book about Greg Maddox, where in the bigger, the, mo the bigger, the moment, the softer he threw. Um, yeah. and, and I thought, you know, from a baseball standpoint, like, yeah, it makes sense. But you extrapolated that to, to what it means to a, a, a layman as well. Um, through your career, uh, how have you been able to do that in other areas that, that you feel have impacted you most? Well, uh, Greg Maddox was just kind of a natural genius that way. I thought, you know, I, and I, and I've had an opportunity to be around some great pitchers, Nolan Ryan, for an example, and Greg Maddox. And you, know, you start naming people, you're going to leave people out who you don't want to, but Maddox for me, that made so much sense. Uh, you know, Nolan, let me talk about Nolan for a moment. One of the things I loved about Nolan Ryan, and, you know, he had to battle to become the guy he was because he was a skinny kid, too hard, no control, all that. And he worked his way. I mean, he, this, you know, this, <laughs> he, he was, he was involved in delivering uh, newborn calves on his uh, ranch and those things as well. So he did things other than baseball. But the thing I loved about him, when he would start a game, finish his warm-up tosses, and he would come down off the mound, and he'd walk about a half to two-thirds of the way toward the plate, and he'd move to the right and smooth the ground with his cleat, and then he'd go to the left side, and he'd smooth the ground with his cleat there. And that was just a message to the hitters. There will be no bunting today. This area here belongs to me. Because, and they knew if 
if they did bunt and he had to come down off the mound and try to make those throws to first, there was there there was in the future a less than comfortable moment awaiting them. I love that. Maddox, on the other hand, would be in a big spot, and he had this sense about him, this calmness about him, and this developed very young with him. And he had this impeccable control, too, and he could manipulate the baseball, didn't hurt either. But I think it started with the idea, with the mentality that he had. And I think that's true in life. I think whether you're, whatever tough spot you're in, slow it down, slow it down, figure it out. And Maddox almost automatically did that. And I think there are things like that in the game that you can learn all the time. And I have, we have three grandchildren, fortunately, five minutes down the street from us, and two of them are boys. And the older one now is a freshman in high school and, uh, and loves the game. Both boys love, they love athletics, but they love baseball. And, and I think Gabe, uh, Gabe understands that he's, you know, as a freshman, uh, made the varsity team as a grandfather might proudly say, but, but, you know, not the best kid on the team, but he still made the team, but has a chance because of his mentality, as well as the, his physical ability that he inherits from his father, um, to, to learn things inside the game that will help him, whether he plays in college or professionally or whatever he does. There are times because baseball will isolate you. You know, it's a team game, but it's an individual moment that makes a difference. And sometimes all that waits on you. So I think all of those things make, make this game as great as it is. It's a team game, but built up of individuals who have to execute. And sometimes you're, in the, you know, you're out there in the middle of the diamond on that mound, 30,000 people. It's all you, pal. It's up to you. I don't want to take too much more of your time, um, Dwayne, but I do want to ask you one more note uh, on a similar vein. Um, if it's all up to you, um, how much do you hone your craft still at this point in your career? Um, how often are you watching games back? And, and what are you looking for at this point when you do it? Well, I, I, think, I think you always have to do that. I don't care what you're doing. I don't care if you're an attorney or, or you know, you're building a house or you're trying to build a road out here. I think you always have to do that because life and the world and existence does not stand still. And I think you always have to be aware of that. We can build our style. We can build our approach. We can build our work habits. We can build all that and make sure that we're checking all those boxes. But we always have to be open to new information. Things change. Uh, the taste for the game changes. And that's, you know, that's the challenge. I, I think we're in a world now where uh, sometimes there's less thought. There's more action. And I think there is still a place for that combination. That's one of the things I think makes baseball so great. I mean, and that's not to denigrate the other sports because you've got to be smart to succeed in all of these sports. But I don't know that it's on display as much on an individual basis in all of those other sports as it is baseball, whether you're covering it or playing it. 
And so I think you have to be in tune. Yeah, you have to be in tune with your viewers, what they want, uh, what you think maybe where you want to take them. You know, they they may not be in a place yet, but we're developing ourselves, but we're developing viewers as well. We have to, it's up to us. It's up to us to inform the viewer why baseball is as great a game as it is. It's a, it's a wonderful game. It will teach you tons of things. And I think the good the, the people who cover this game, who do it successfully, are the people who, who can do that. You can't show up and just arbitrarily do a game. I think there has to somehow be that human connection. And I think baseball gives you that great opportunity, maybe more than any other sport. That's really well put. Um, and that makes you think a lot about uh, showing up to the ballpark uh, the, the next time we all do it. Um, which uh, is the last thing I want to ask you about is um, have you thought about what showing up to the ballpark might look like if and when that happens this year and the oddity of calling a game sans fans or, or what other curveballs might be thrown your way professionally this year? Well, I, I think, I think we can all do that. Uh, in fact, there were uh, a number of some of the, veteran baseball play-by-play guys who who did one of these zoom get-togethers just uh, the other day just to talk about the situation where it is Uh, what i think very well could happen uh, i think we could wind up doing games not only without fans in the ballpark but i think we could wind up doing games off a monitor i think travel is going to be an issue where you're sitting right Uh, now (laughs) yeah you know technically speaking it's not impossible to do a game. I could do a game from my office off a monitor. Now, are we going to go to a, to a studio? Are we going to go to the ballpark and have our monitors set up there and, and do the road games from those monitors? I think that's a distinct possibility that we could find all ourselves doing. I think it's important to get the product on the air. I think it's important for a lot of reasons financial being one of them, but I think people, people want to see the games now. And, you know, sports fans are attached to their events and I don't know that anybody's attached more than baseball fans are. And they're missing, uh, they're missing these games. And from a, from a, an economic point of view, and I leave that up to the executives who are, you know, much brighter than our us mere broadcasters, but you know, they're, they're missing a lot of revenue right now. So they're interested in that, in that TV and radio revenue. And I, you know, I, you can't blame them. I mean, the, the guy at, at the donut shop down the street's interested in being open and developing a more revenue as well. So um, I, I think we could, uh, we could wind up doing that. Uh, let's do what we have to do to uh, keep the economy going and to keep this game going. And we'll, uh, you know, we'll slug our way through this and get back to a, a sense of normalcy. Uh, things may always be a little different. Maybe we're always going to be a little more cautious. Might not be anything wrong with that. But whatever it takes to get these games uh, back and on the air, you know, they're going to be in empty ballparks, it would appear, unless something happens that, that we can't visualize right now. And, but that may be the deal. They may be empty ballparks, and there may be uh, broadcast off monitors somewhere, but 
less, uh, and that's not the first time events have been done on monitors. You know, they do it in the Olympics. They do it in all kinds of sports. So it's, it's been done before and we can all do that. Whatever we have to do to keep this thing moving forward is what we ought to do. And I say this jokingly as well, as somebody who uh, formerly broadcast in the Florida State League, it is not the first time that a uh, game has been played in front of an empty ballpark either. (laughs) (laughs) That is true. That is absolutely true. So, um, you know, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll take it and we'll, uh, we'll make it as good of uh, a good a product as we can absolutely uh, make it. And if we, if we fail at that, it won't be because of lack of effort. But I've got confidence that, that we can do that and do a good job and move this thing forward. Dwayne, uh, best of luck when that comes around. And uh, thanks for sitting down and, and doing this. This was a, this was a cool introspective uh, conversation, so I appreciate you doing it. Joel, I appreciate uh, being with you. Be safe, and uh, we'll look forward to seeing you down the road. All right, that is Dwayne Stats joining us here on Play by Playcast. Many thanks to him uh, for hopping on as well. It's, uh, it's always fun to be able to pick brains of guys that you have listened to and watched a lot. And uh, I, I, like I grew up a Braves fan, so like that's where my allegiance lies in baseball. But I always had a thing for the Rays because like color scheme, cool, name, cool, Fred McGriff. I was a Braves fan. Um, and then I w- was around them a lot. So I've, I, I've been to a bunch of Rays games. Uh, so uh, cool to talk to Dwayne because he was on my TV a bunch when I lived in uh, Bradenton and in Tampa. Uh, Scott Fransky from the Philadelphia Phillies is our guest next week. And until we talk to you, then we'll say so long. For Dwayne Stats, my name is Joel Gadet, and this is Play by Playcast, and we are out. And that will do it from St. Louis, where the score is inconclusive.